Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, November 16th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour, I'm Eric White filling in for Tom Temin. Our producers are Peter Masarlian and Michelle Sandiford. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, the Air Force finally reveals a little bit about how the F-35 stacks up in providing close air support. Plus, one of the EPA's most sacred databases could be at risk. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the White House will soon send Congress a legislative proposal to overhaul how agencies hire and manage their cyber workforce. The proposal attempts to tackle what officials think is one of the biggest barriers to cyber recruiting inside government, the patchwork of disparate workforce authorities across agencies. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me. Justin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, Eric? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. So tell us more about this proposal. Yeah, so this is intended to create a government-wide cyber hiring system which would be a first because there's been several uh, agency-specific systems put in place over the years, the Defense Department's Cyber Accepted Service, the Department of Homeland Security's Cyber Talent Management System, to name two of the big ones. And this proposal from the Federal Cyber Workforce Working Group out of the White House is intended to really create a one-size-fits-all package inspired by some of the best bits of those other systems that those agencies have already put into place. Uh, you know, and it's it's also really intended to create a level playing field because those agencies like DOD and DHS can use their systems to pay cyber people a little bit more than other agencies can. And in the federal government, that makes a big difference when you're so far behind the private sector to begin with. Jason Bark is Deputy Associate Director for Strategic Workforce Planning at OPM. He spoke about this proposal at a Foundation for Defense of Democracies events last week. How do we create kind of this equity across the federal government for, you know, everybody kind of on this level playing field? So, you know, we're not really competing against each other. Maybe we're competing against private sector, but we're able to bring in that talent that we need. Interesting. So do all the agencies support this push from the White House? Yeah, so that's what officials uh, say and hope. Uh, you know, they they developed this proposal through an interagency working group that I mentioned that includes 34 agencies, actually, in addition to various White House offices, all taking a look at this issue and, and coordinating on this proposal. So officials hope that that kind of consens- consensus building, excuse me, on the front end, could make it easier to support on Capitol Hill once this proposal goes over there. Mark Montgomery is senior director of the Foundation for Defensive Democracies Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation. He's also executive director of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission 2.0. The thing that kills a lot of White House legislation are federal agencies going behind their back to the congressional committees of concern and saying, don't do this. You have to get everybody on board because if you don't, you know, particularly, I would name names, but I mean, there are federal agencies that are very effective in using their committees of jurisdiction to kill legislation. Sure. All right. And so what are some of the agency specific hiring cyber hiring systems that exist today? Uh, which ones stand out as the, among the best? 
Yeah, I, I mentioned at the top DHS's cyber talent management system. That's one of the newest ones, really. It is exempt from many of the federal government's traditional competitive hiring, classification, and compensation practices. Hires under the, under the system can make a salary as high as the vice president's in some cases. That's pretty notable. Uh, similarly, DOD can offer higher pay to cyber personnel under its cyber accepted service system. And the Pentagon wants to expand that system uh, from its current crop of about 15,000 people to cover as many as 75,000. So the Pentagon, with, you know, its big budget and weight there, is expanding its specialized system. Then the Department of Veterans Affairs, another big agency, began leveraging authorities under the PACT Act earlier this year to offer big pay raises to IT and cyber employees. And finally, you know, the National Security Agency, another cyber heavyweight, can offer higher pay to cyber and technology specialists with some special uh, pay authority that they have. So you've got these big agencies that have special hiring authorities and then dozens of others who who don't have anything at this point, really. Uh, C.U. Mo, Assistant National Cyber Director for Workforce Education and, Stra- and Awareness, spoke about that issue at the foundation event last week. Some of the stuff that I don't think private sector companies face is the fact that we have all sorts of different authorities and flexibilities. They're either created through guidances, rulemaking, or by law. So I think just navigating that in, in an environment in which technology changes faster than we can train people in which the skills are constantly changing, I think that's a unique challenge that, that our federal workforce face in trying to recruit people. And CU Mo, Assistant National Cyber Director for Workforce Education and Awareness. We're speaking with Federal News Network's reporter, Justin Doubleday. All right, so proposing legislation is only half the battle. What's the outlook for this legislation? Could it actually get passed? Yeah, well, you definitely see significant support in Congress generally to expand the federal cyber workforce, to expand cyber hiring really across the board. But this proposal still hasn't gone over to Congress as far as we know. It's in that kind of final stages at this point. So it still needs to get over there. And then it needs to, of course, get a lawmaker, a group of lawmakers to begin championing it and then bringing it forward to passage Assuming that happens at some point, there's a long implementation timeline, typically with new personnel systems like this. So officials at the the foundation event really stressed that, you know, this is a big deal. This is a big proposal, but it's not going to happen uh, and be implemented overnight. It's It's going to take some time here to really get this off the ground. All right. So in the meantime, what are agencies trying to do to fill all those vacant cyber positions that they have? Yeah, one thing they're doing is trying to train federal HR managers on some authorities that they do have that could help with cybersecurity recruiting, things like local market supplemental pay. Uh, there's, you know, technology fellowships and different things agencies can take advantage of to fill certain positions and needs. Agencies are also looking at ways to bring technical talent into government more quickly through the tech to gov initiative, which is a relatively new uh, initiative out of the federal government that aims to pull folks from the private sector uh, to find their first job in government. You know, there is this wave of layoffs in the technology sector over the past year or so. So agencies are definitely looking to see if they can attract some of those folks into the uh, into the government space. 
and just using things like uh, pooled hiring and and shared certificates can help make it easier for agencies to hire uh, for specific cyber occupations and tech technical applications and things like that. All right. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thank you for the insight. And we'll be touching back with you as soon as we see more about that legislation happening. Absolutely. Thank you, Eric. And you can find Justin's story and this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, one of the EPA's most sacred databases could be at risk. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. The Environmental Protection Agency's Integrated Risk Information System, or IRIS database, is one of the main tools the agency relies on for environmental regulations containing information on human health effects that may result from exposure to various chemicals in the environment. However, a new report from the EPA's Inspector General says the agency needs to do a better job of who has access to it or it could be tampered with. For more on the report, we welcome Jeremy Sigel, Supervisory Audit Manager in the Information Resources Management Directorate with the IG's office. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So is it safe to say, am I oversimplifying it, if if I refer to the IRIS database kind of as the EPA's glossary, so to speak? That's that's an interesting term. I mean, it's more of a something that, you know, has its chemical evaluation program. It contains toxicity information and assessment reports for toxic chemicals. So, you know, it's something that the protection of that data and, and how it's displayed and disseminated is is a great ongoing concern that, you know, that needs to be secured. While the Iris database is, is mostly internal. I mean, we've seen so many examples of, you know, internal threats that can be used to exploit vulnerabilities. So, you know, our purpose in this audit was to make sure that that data is uh, properly secured. Got it. And so, yeah, we'll get to those threats. But yeah, just trying to establish what this IRIS database does is it it contains the effects that certain chemicals have on human health and the environment. Does that mean it includes, you know, studies and things of that nature as well? Well, yeah, what it contains are assessment reports that the that they receive, the Office of Research and Development for EPA receives, and then their their IRIS program, which includes this IRIS database, that then displays the not only the assessment results, but also, you know, the scheduling of some there's a seven step process. So sometimes, you know, the the rating or the the chemical information may not be ready yet, but they at least show, you know, where it is in the process. And if it is complete, then you can go in and see the assessment reports on there. Got it. Okay. And so then they use those assessment reports to determine whether or not policymakers need to take a look at, you know, regulating them on who has access to the chemicals and where they can be used. I think it's more of displaying the information so that it it can be relied upon for, you know, environmental and any kind of, you know, scientific policy. Okay, so now let's get more into your wheelhouse here. What kind of IT security is required for such a database by law and, you know, needed just to make it effective? You know, every government uh, information system is subject to federal and then their own agency's regulations. So, 
if, if, for instance, a lot of the requirements come from the National Institutes of Standards and Technology. And so we'll look at those requirements, you know, specifically for this audit, it was just access control. So, you know, who can who can access the database, who has what are the process for approving access? And so they can take these federal requirements, like, for instance, say, you know, every password has to expire in 60 days. The agency can either adopt those in their own IT procedures or say, you know, this we can't really support that. So we're going to make it 90 days. And this is in basically standardized in our IT procedures. So what we looked at was who had access you know, what are the password settings? Who has elevated access? Is that access monitored, reviewed on a periodic basis? And uh, that was mainly our, our thrust for the audit. Okay. And was there anything in particular that sparked the audit or was it a part of your regularly scheduled programming? No, actually, two years ago, I was reading an article about a the Trump administration was trying to get a, an OMB mandate that made it so these assessments had to go through White House approval. And I guess this had been done in the past. Uh, so the article said it had been done in the past and it was found that that greatly reduced the reliability or integrity of the, the reports. But the one thing that stood out to me was in this article, it actually mentioned the information system stood out to me because they never really mention any, you know, government systems by name in these articles. It's usually, you know, a higher level or, you know, something more important that stood out to me. And I realized, you know, I then did further research knowing that GAO had done uh, a lot of reports uh, related to Iris. And I looked through those reports and realized that none of them touched upon IT security. So I proposed it to our agency, you know, basically that saying, you know, this is just putting our foot in the door to look at it because I don't think it has been looked at before by anybody. So from that angle, we said, well, let's look at, you know, the most, I guess the, the basic, you know, your foundation for any kind of IT security, which would be access controls. We're speaking with Jeremy Sigel from the EPA's Office of Inspector General. All right, so let's get into the results of the audit and what you exactly found. Uh, what were some of the top-level concerns that you have? I know you got into a, a few of them uh, earlier, but you know, as far as access management goes, what were some of the most egregious red flags that you saw? I just want to preface it by saying that you know this is a very there's a very limited number of people with access to it. It's mostly just developers and and their contractors. However, you know because it hadn't been looked at and there really wasn't any new access to to it in years. You know we got a listing of the users and looked through it and then said you know do really all these people need access because a lot of their accounts are still active and then the agency reviewed them and knocked out you know the majority of them based on you know saying that yeah you're right this. This doesn't need they don't need access. But then we went even further and we looked at, you know, the, the database server that Iris is hosted on and found some password issues. Some some of the password settings were a, a bit lax. Some of them that, you know, they didn't have control over. They don't want to be too restrictive and, and lock certain accounts that, you know, the database needs in order to function. But, you know, just as an overall practice we saw that there was a, a lack of, of monitoring and periodic review. So if we came in and basically saw why do all these people need active accounts if it's really just displaying these reports that have already been vetted, then they went through and said, OK, you know, they don't need to be active. They don't need to have these accounts. 
But, you know, there really wasn't any purpose to the accounts anyways. So we'll just just to be safe, lock them up, which is, you know, was our concern, um, knowing that there's really no external access to it. Our concern was, well, there still could be internal threats and those internal threats could be exploited. So that's basically what we looked at was, you know, the entry level access controls of who has access and, you know, why do they have that access and is it really needed and and how often is it reviewed? And all of our findings pretty much flowed from there. Got it. Okay. And so what are the risks of having, you know, the lack of access controls? You know, I guess this goes back to the purpose of the list again. Is it the kind of thing that somebody could get in there and manipulate if they, you know, if a bad actor ended up getting access, whether internally or externally? Yeah, I, I don't know if I would go that far. It's more just because this information is so valuable and so relied upon, you know, any alteration or availability of that data we feel is is uh, is important. So, you know, even if, if it's not something an external actor can get to, there's still the internal threat. But also, I mean, we've seen examples just recently in, in the news, like with Okta, you know, they that was a service account that was exploited from an internal user just trying to access their account and then an outside threat getting access to it because the service accounts, these shared accounts, these system accounts, they still need to have some restrictions to them so that they can't be exploited. Even if, you know, the example that I like to use is you could have a really nice safe, but it doesn't matter if you leave the door unlocked. Jeremy Sigel is Supervisory Audit Manager and the Information Resources Management Directorate at the EPA's Office of Inspector General. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for your insight. Thank you. And you can find this interview along with a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. And you can access externally or internally the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, this NASA team's work means the whole world can sleep a little better. But first, the Air Force finally reveals a little bit about how the F-35 stacks up in providing close air support. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. After rounds of FOIA requests and even litigation, the Project on Government Oversight received a copy of the A-10C and F-35A Close Air Support Fly-Off Test Report. The test was to compare how both aircraft stack up in providing close air support to ground troops. After analyzing the heavily redacted document, POGO analysts found that despite what the Air Force has been saying, it appears the F-35 may not be well-suited for providing that support. One of them was Dan Grazier, Senior Defense Policy Fellow at POGO. I had the chance to speak with Dan about what he found. Overall, we really just wanted to find out if the F-35 really could replace the capabilities that are currently provided by the A-10. And our history with this goes way back. Um, Don't we know it? Yeah. (laughs) Well, it goes back more than a decade just with this test. So this was before I started working at, at POGO in 2015, where my predecessor had spent time on Capitol Hill urging lawmakers to mandate this comparative test starting back 2013, 2014 timeframe. And I kind of picked up that effort and, and carried it forward a little bit. And then we finally did get that provision included in the FY 2017 National Defense Authorization Act. And then the tests happened the next year, well, the next two years really kind of unfolded between 2018 and 2019. But then there was nothing. We knew the tests happened, but nobody ever produced any of the results from it. 
and you just had Air Force officials spitting out talking points about how much better the F-35 is than the A-10, and we just said, okay, well, show us the receipts. We know these tests happen, but for years, nobody even acknowledged that there was a report, and there was actually a reason for that. It was because the report wasn't written until about three or four years after the test had happened. And then, yes, it did take a FOIA request that was ignored and then a lawsuit in federal court to actually shake out what we did get, which was a heavily redacted version of the report that was written in, I think it was February 2022. All right. So we'll get into what the report itself actually said in a second, but let's set the groundwork here. What were these kind of tests? Um, were they just seeing the capabilities of both of them? And, you know, what was there a race or <laughs> what did they do? <laughs> right. So the designers of the test set up a series of scenarios where the you know, pilots flying the respective aircraft would have to uh, take instructions from a ground controller about a target location and then all that information had to be really up to the pilot. The pilot had to correlate that and then had to try to attack the target. Uh, and so I, I forget exactly how many how many actual test runs there were, but each aircraft was supposed to fly the exact same scenario, kind of kind of back to back, just to see you know which aircraft performed better, you know attack times. They tested a whole bunch of different parameters, and uh, yeah, and it was those uh, those test results that we were really interested to see. And so uh, let's get to the results now. So what did what did it say, and what capabilities was there? A little bit of give and take, or was it kind of one sided? Well, so the the report that we did finally receive after the you know after we filed suit was heavily redacted. I would say at least ninety percent of the information in the report was blacked out. But what was left did actually tell a story. So one, you know, the main purpose of the test was to see if the F thirty five was actually better than the A ten provided you know in the attack role. So there's three missions that go along with that. There's there's close air support, which I think most people are pretty familiar with. There was airborne forward air control, uh, which is basically uh, instead of having a controller on the ground, you have another aircraft that locates the target and then passes that information to another aircraft that actually that's actually the shooter. And then there's uh, combat search and rescue, which is, you know, if you have a pilot that ejects, ends up on the ground behind enemy territory, then you have an aircraft that flies cover trying to protect that pilot until rescue forces could come in and pick him up. So those are three really key mission capabilities that right now are provided by the A-10. And we wanted to make sure that the F-35, which was supposed to replace the A-10, can actually perform those missions. And the one thing that was really obvious right off the right off the bat when I got a copy of the report was if the F-35 was better, was vastly superior to the A-10, it should have been in big, bold, clear letters right in the first paragraph of the report. And that wasn't there because that first paragraph is not redacted. So, you know, with all the other information, it's pretty clear that the evaluators found a lot of shortcomings in the F-35 in these roles. Oh, and one of the ways that we know that is essentially the last page of the report is a list of recommendations for how to improve the F-35's performance in those roles. There were eight bullet points. All the text was blacked out. But there was not a similar list of recommendations for the A-10. So clearly there were, there were a lot of shortcomings that were identified. 
And so do you have a feeling, you know, what was the reasoning given to you when there was resistance in releasing this report? Was it, did they say security as usual or, you know, was there other some, something else at play here in your instincts? Well, so the redactions are marked and they're, they're coded. And so all the redactions were for national security purposes. So the official line is that they're trying to protect national security concerns. The real reason, I think, is is a lot more nuanced than that. I think it's these tests did not fit within the narrative that Air Force officials have been have been using to retire the A-10, you know, to, didn't bolster their argument. And so they really didn't want anything that could possibly contradict their their talking points. And, a, and, a, and I'll give you a really good example of that. So the, the main argument against the A-10 is that it can't survive in a modern threat environment. There's a lot of debate about that because there's we have A-10 pilots who have come back and have talked about how they had to limp back their A-10 that did get shot up because they do fly low and close to the close to the ground. And but the pilots landed safely you know, because the aircraft is designed to do that. You know, like an F-35 takes one hit and the F-35 is going down. Now, we saw in South Carolina just a couple of weeks ago that what looks like a an electrical glitch led to a pilot, an F-35 pilot, having to punch out just because, you know, computer needed to restart or something like that. We have to wait till the investigation to get all those details. And so in the in the test, in the in the authors of the of this A-10 F-35 close air support flyoff report, they kind of make the point a couple times in the unredacted parts of it that they didn't even test in a high threat environment. There's a lot of problems with that. But I thought that was really telling. Like if they just make the natural assumption that the A-10 can't survive and the F-35 can, well, why don't we just test that then? They can do that. They can set up tests where they have a you know a whole lot of, of simulated enemy air defense systems. And let's see uh, you know what it is because now it's just a talking point. That's all it is. It's, it's not been proven. Uh, it certainly wasn't proven in these tests. And they just say, oh, we, we didn't need to do it because the F-35 is an obvious advantage in this. Well, okay, just prove it. And they didn't do that. So – There's still a lot of questions that need to be answered. Dan Grazier is with the Project on Government Oversight. And also a point about it is the the length of time it took for them to actually make the report itself. Uh, Was there maybe some hope in a loss of interest or getting things getting lost in the bureaucracy there or in the paperwork? Did your antenna go up on that as well? Oh, it absolutely did. Because normally a testing report uh, from operational tests are written within 90 days of the of the end of the tests. No, because, you know, there's a lot of things that that go on in testing or just observations that people make. I mean, they scribble notes and everything, but, you know, you want those memories fresh so you can accurately report what happened. And so I think all the officials just kind of drag their feet. Quite frankly, I think that there must have been some kind of pressure someplace to actually get them to draft this report because when we started asking questions after the test had concluded about, hey, where where's this report? And the only response that we could ever get was, oh, well, we're going to include all that in the in the bigger F-35 initial operational test and evaluation report, which when I first started asking about about these back in 2018, you know, we anticipated IOT&E for the F-35 program to last another, you know, another probably five years. And I was right because here it's the end of 2023 and we still haven't seen that report. But this was the fly off between the A-10 and the F-35 
this was this was largely separate from the the other operational testing for the F thirty five program. This was a specific mandate from Congress in the National Defense Authorization Act in twenty seventeen that was made after the initial operational test and evaluation program had already been signed off on. It had begun by that point. And so we just started saying, hey, this should be a separate report because this is this is a, a separate, you know, testing um, you know, testing event beyond uh, initial operational test and evaluation. So, yeah, I think they were dragging their feet because, uh, again, this shattered their narrative. They've been trying to make this case for, for a long time that, that you know, the, the A-10 is no longer relevant in, you know, considering modern, you know, modern combat. Again, there's plenty of debate to be had about that. So they didn't want any receipts, they especially, you know, they frankly didn't want me out here being able to report about what happened during these tests. Yeah, making the case from the Air Force point of view, officials are probably in a between a rock and a hard place, you know, trying to make these claims. And obviously, you know, these tests, there's a lot of complications that come in on who's piloting them, who's evaluating them. Over the course, and you've been reporting on this for so long, of the F-35's history, and, you know, we'll probably still be reporting on this when me and you are long retired, it seems, as if because it's just been going on so long. Where do things stand at the moment, and where does this lie in the timeline of the F-35? Well, there's actually kind of two timelines involved here. So this fly-off test that happened in 2018 and 2019 kind of fell towards the beginning of the initial operational test evaluation process for the F-35 program. Now, testing had been going on for a long time before that, but the real formal, like, kind of final IoT and E part, this kind of fell right right in the middle of that. That process has gone on for four years, and it only just ended this summer when the Joint Strike Fighter program officials were finally able, you know, to cobble together somewhat of a working, you know, verified simulator to test the 64 missions that they needed, uh, you know, the, the really high end, this is what we're paying extra for missions. Uh, so that only happened this past summer. So I kind of expect, honestly, any day now for the IOTE report to come out, which would be kind of funny because, again, IOTE for the F 35 program just ended a couple months ago. And if it comes, and if the report for that comes out here before the end of the year, then that kind of really raises some more questions about this comparative you know, fly-off report and why it took three or four years to emerge. So that's one timeline. The other timeline that's a, that's a little more critical, and this is is the Congress is on the cusp of uh, authorizing the retirement of two A-10 squadrons. So when this budget goes through, if it goes through as as drafted right now, two squadrons out of Davis Mothin and in Arizona um, A-10 squadrons are going to be are going to be retired. So it's going to greatly shrink the fleet. It's going to make it kind of difficult to maintain the rest of the A-10s that that are still in service. And so that that that's problematic because I always have to point out this is not trying to protect the A-10 as an aircraft. Like that this 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 whole fight has never been about that. It's about preserving the close air support capability that is resident in the Air Force right now. And if the A-10s retired without a dedicated attack aircraft replacement, then all of the corporate knowledge that has been built up over the last nearly 50 years now in the A-10 you know, uh, attack pilot community is going to vanish very quickly. Dan Grazier is Senior Defense Policy Fellow at the Project on Government Oversight. There's more to this interview. You can find it along with a link to Dan's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Find all of our interviews wherever you get your podcasts.
Still to come on Federal News Network, this NASA team's work means the whole world can sleep a little better. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. As if pandemics, threats of nuclear war, and a lack of Tesla charging stations aren't enough to worry about, there's always the possibility that an asteroid could hit the Earth and wipe all of us out. A team at NASA discovered a way to alter the path of an asteroid should one come too close, though, and they're also finalists in this year's Service to America medals program. Joining Federal Drive host Tom Temin with the details from NASA's Planetary Missions Program Office, Program Manager Brian Key and Mission Manager Scott Bellamy. All right, you launched a rocket that crashed into an asteroid. And I guess my first question is, this rocket was able to change somewhat the trajectory of that asteroid. I want to understand what the math calculus was. I mean, generally, how did you figure this out? Because an asteroid is very big, a rocket is very small. You couldn't launch something as big as the asteroid. That's not possible. But if you shot a marble at it, it wouldn't make any difference. What was the process to figure out how you could do this? Scott? I think the easiest way to you know, start that answer that question is realize that it's not just Brian and I. There's an entire team behind us. You know, we sit in a management position, but you know, supporting this entire effort is a large group of scientists and engineers uh, working at the Applied Physics Laboratory to uh, help answer that. But tell us what the team did. So if you look at it like you're playing billiards in space, uh, you're playing pool, galactic pool, so this is not dissimilar from how you described the scenario with the smaller spacecraft hitting the larger asteroid. But when you take the smaller spacecraft and you, you know, look at how fast is it flying, what is its mass relative to the object that it's impacting, you determine how much kinetic energy has to be imparted from one body to the other to affect a change in its orbit. And so the scientists that you know, had been working on the design of the mission came up with the parameters that needed to be adjusted in order to achieve the result of altering the orbit of Dimorphos. All right. And what happened when you launched it? It hit the asteroid. <laughs> Most definitely. <laughs> that is actually the point of highest tension in this entire event is what happened when it hit the asteroid. It hit the asteroid. It's, you know, very high velocity and uh, the smaller asteroid Dimorphos is that we ended up with a lot of spacecraft confetti. We had a spacecraft that's just a little over 1,200 pounds in mass, you know, slightly larger than you know your typical refrigerator, and it hit at you know over 13,000, almost 13,500 miles per hour. So you know, it was not just a glancing blow; it was a very precisely targeted impact with a certain spot on the surface of Dimorphos to achieve that perfect little amount of English on the spacecraft's trajectory inbound to you know, get that ball to sink right into the corner pocket the way they planned it. The speed is a big factor in this, almost like a hypersonic missile. It's the impact of the weight times the speed that is the power. It doesn't even have to have an That's, explosive. Yeah. Yeah, that's the energy, mass times velocity. You're calculating the kinetic energy of the impact. And so with with a known kinetic energy impacting an object that is traveling in its orbit at its 
certain velocity you know you take the velocity and you break it down into what you're facing head on and then you know what the mass is roughly that's coming at you and you size the spacecraft large enough to hopefully surpass what's needed to change it because you can get hit by a volkswagen out on the interstate and if you're driving a huge suv it's still going to you know affect your trajectory down the road yeah it can flip you over if the angle is right i guess yeah Yeah. true and brian you're the program manager Uh, how did you convince nasa and i guess ultimately congress i mean it sounds like a little bit science fiction you know you've seen cartoons of rockets landing in the moon's eyeball this kind of thing how did you convince them that this was a worthwhile experiment It didn't take much convincing. These ideas have been out there for quite a while. And the science mission directorate at headquarters stood up a planetary defense office within the planetary science office. And it was the planetary defense office that basically brought forward the idea. Once they selected the mission, we took over management of it. So it was planetary defense office that actually... uh, brought it forward and said, yeah, this is a good thing for us to try and do. And they went to APL and got a proposal of what it would take. Then they turned it over to us to implement it. The rocket itself, was it just a rocket and the weight of itself was there? Was there lead weights in the front or anything to get it to that proper mass that you calculated it required? Well, first, let's think about it like this. It's not the entire rocket. It's just the spacecraft that the rocket is launching. So, no, everything on the spacecraft, the essential things to be able to fly it, you have to be able to have the items that control the trajectory of the spacecraft, uh, point the solar arrays, the solar arrays themselves, the optical instrument that has to be there to do the targeting. So the spacecraft in and of itself was literally what it needed to fit inside of the launch vehicle, the fairing at the top, the enclosure and have enough mass to affect a change. Now, its weights are sometimes added to any spacecraft to get the balance where you want it to. But no, it wasn't like a uh, a race car that's carrying an extra 1,500 pound of weight just to get to the mass where they want it. In this case, in most cases, it's like, you know, if you have space left to play with, you prefer to put something usable in there for mission accomplishment other than just dead weight. And it's been, you know, a couple of eons, I guess, since an asteroid has hit the Earth, 60, 65 million years, maybe a long time. Does NASA generally watch asteroids? And what is anyone's best guess of the chances of being hit anytime soon by another asteroid big enough to do damage to humanity? I guess we get hit by little meteorites all the time. The last asteroid to hit was not... 65 million years ago. We've had fairly good-sized asteroids hit the Earth more recent than that, just not in the United States. I think the last one was over in Russia. We do have a sister mission that is in development right now that will put basically a, a camera up in orbit around the Earth that will basically monitor the sky and collect data to determine where these asteroids are, what their trajectories are, whether they're a danger to Earth or not. That particular mission, I think, scheduled to launch in 2027. It's called NEO Surveyor. 
Brian Key is a program manager, and Scott Bellamy is a mission manager in the Planetary Missions Program Office at NASA. They're also finalists in this year's Service to America's Medal Program. There's more to this interview. We'll post it along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. But first, a continuing resolution has been cleared to avoid a government shutdown at the end of the week. The appropriations package implements a two-step approach to a continuing resolution. But the question of full-year government funding remains, as well as some other bills still on the table that impact federal retirees. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got the latest from the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association's Staff Vice President for Policy and Programs, John Hatton. Meanwhile, both the House and the Senate have been working on kind of full-year appropriations bills that may have new language, may have different funding levels, um, fund different programs. And so the House took up the Financial Services and General Government Bill uh, recently, and that included some you know, first of all, the House has been has been passing these bills with much lower levels of funding that, than this year or what was agreed to uh, in the Fiscal Responsibility Act, which uh, raised the debt limit um, that set what we thought were budget caps or everything. So significant cuts to OPM funding, you know, on the flip side that included report language saying we're concerned about OPM retirement services, but then it didn't really provide the funding needed to improve those services. It also included some language on the thrift savings plan, kind of preventing investments in funds that use primary criteria that are environmental, social, and governance. The thrift board said that would force us to close the mutual fund window because we can't uh, monitor all those funds. And they just recently rolled that out, giving people options within the TSP outside of those core funds. So there's some problematic provisions. Uh, The good news is that didn't pass the House. They didn't have the votes, so they pulled it from the floor uh, prior to voting for it. Meanwhile, the Senate is working on kind of mini buses, a combination of three bills at a time, uh, trying to pass those. The House has um, passed, I think, now seven of the 12. So at the same time, we have this continuing resolution to provide more time for the appropriations process and seeing some of these uh, specific provisions enter the debate. You know, the continuing resolution gives more time to kind of pass the remaining ones and negotiate between the House and the Senate. And other than all of the, you know, the appropriations process, the continuing resolution, there's several other bills that are quite relevant to federal employees and retirees right now. Uh, one of those is the Social Security Fairness Act, which would uh, repeal two provisions, the windfall elimination provision and the government pension offset. Can you explain a little bit more about, you know, what exactly those provisions of Social Security do and what, what it would mean to federal retirees if those were repealed? These have long been a top issue for NARF. Uh, They affect the civil service retirement system, retirees in the federal government who, when working for the federal government under that system, did not pay into Social Security. But they may have gone outside of federal government and earned their Social Security through private sector work. But when they go and apply for that Social Security benefit, it gets reduced by the windfall elimination provision. Uh, And then the government pension offset would reduce their spousal or survivor benefits. So they both reduce Social Security benefits, in our view, unfairly because you're earning the CSRS pension. It also affects state and local uh, government retirees. The good news is this bill to repeal both provisions has 300 co-sponsors in the House. We're up to 49 in the Senate. Last year was the first time a House or any congressional committee advanced the bill to repeal it. There's a hearing scheduled in Louisiana, a field hearing 
uh, next Monday, uh, the 20th. Uh, to take a look at this and really hear the stories from people that are directly affected. And Louisiana is one of those states where the police, the firefighters in that state are affected, the teachers in that state are affected, uh, as well as, you know, CSRS retirees. So trying to raise some more uh, light on the issue and hopefully get some movement. Um, This was also done pursuant to a letter from Garrett Graves and Spamberger, who are the lead sponsors of the bill, asking for a hearing. So it's moving along. We're making progress. We just got to keep up the momentum on it. And, you know, that bill, it's been around for a very long time. But as you mentioned, it's gained a lot of traction just in the past couple of years. Do you see that as something that, you know, even if it doesn't make it by this Congress, something that could happen or has maybe a better chance of happening in the next couple of years? Yeah, I think we're seeing more attention to it. We've seen actual action. We're seeing hearings now. I think, you know, it's still an uphill climb on the full repeal of these provisions just because the cost, right? So the biggest barrier to passing these and the reason it hasn't passed yet being a bill with 300 co-sponsors is that it has a budget cost. The Social Security Trust Fund already has some solvency issues. So this would make those solvency issues a little bit worse. Now, my argument is that this is not a fair provision. It's already helped keep the trust fund solvent for this long you know, this was part of the package of reforms in the late 70s and 80s to help keep Social Security uh, solvent. So we should be able to figure out a way to fix this, uh, at least incrementally in the near term, and and, and make some progress on this, this issue. I think the, the momentum has really been growing in terms of the, the amount of support there is in Congress for this. One other piece of news that we just saw this week was the Thrift Savings Plan is changing its benchmark for uh, one of its funds. Can you explain a little bit more about what's going on there and what that's going to mean for participants in the TSP? Really kind of go back a few years and the TSP had been looking to expand the iFund investments beyond its current holdings uh, into emerging markets. And so they had already planned to do this expansion that ran into some political resistance because it would have included investments in China. So there was some pressure from the Trump administration, pressure from Senator Marco Rubio and a couple others uh, in the Senate on that. And the thrift board decided to hold off on expanding the I funds. Uh, Also more recently in the Senate NDA, there was an amendment from Marco Rubio to prevent any investments in securities of national concern, it would have implicated the current I funds because they have some investments in Hong Kong, which is now part of China. And so that could have implicated whether the current I fund was viable going forward if that passed. It didn't become part of the NDAA, but it got 56 votes from senators and it had a 60 vote threshold. So there were some concerns, I think, that the current I fund had some political issues. The previous plan had some political issues. And what the new change is, is that they're expanding the iPod fund, which they wanted to do a little less than a decade ago. Uh, but if they're excluding China and they're excluding Hong Kong from those investments. So it's going to go beyond the European, Canadian uh, investments and get into more emerging markets, getting a little bit more diversified investments for TSP participants. But it still takes out kind of areas where there is a lot of controversy specifically China and Hong Kong. So interesting new development. We'll have to see the implementation is next year. Um, We'll have to see some more guidance from the thrift board on exactly how that will work. I'm sure people will get equal value uh, in their investments and their transition. But I think it's a good news sign that allows people to have a little bit um, more exposure to more markets, again, without those Uh, those controversial provisions. John Hatton is a vice president at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. You can find more of Drew's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com.
It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom.